and welcome to another episode of the Rethinking H2O podcast, where every week we explore different stories around water that include safe water projects, trends in the water space, and blue mind. We hope you enjoy listening, and now here's your host, Kevin Sofen. Many people may not realize it, but on a daily basis, we consume hundreds and thousands of gallons of water in our diet via the food we consume. In this podcast, we're going to sit down with the author of Eat Less Water, Florencia Ramirez, about what it actually means to eat less water. Florencia started as an activist when she started buying and selling different shower timers to reduce the water that people consume during droughts, but realized that we can all be activists not only in the shower and the bathroom, but in our kitchen. We're going to dive through some of the fascinating stories of the different farmers that she encounters and what it actually means to be organic. We're going to do a series of different podcasts in the future on the range of different topics around Eat Less Water, and we really hope you enjoy listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Rethinking H2O podcast. Today, we have the fortune of sitting down with the author of Eat Less Water, Florencia Ramirez. Florencia, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you for having me on. Of course. For those of us that don't really know the concept of Eat Less Water, give us a little context First, about yourself, and then how you ended up writing a book called Eat Less Water. So, so my story begins in the shower. I um, About 10 years ago, we were, I, I live in California, and we were experiencing a drought, which is, that was three droughts ago. And I'm looking at the newspaper, and I look at all the different ways of saving water. The, the Metropolitan Water District, which is our largest water, I guess um, they hold the water for, for most of California. So they gave us just a list of things that we should do to save water during the drought, which is the same things that are rolled out for all droughts anywhere in the country, probably anywhere in the world. And so one of those things was to take a shorter shower. So I you know, I think about what is my own shower time? You know, I've been, I, you know, I take my own water bottle places. I considered myself to be an environmentalist. You know, I had my compost pile right outside my kitchen. I recycled, but water was something that I didn't give a whole lot of thought to in terms of water conservation. And I, so I get into the shower and I start to time it to think, you know, so I could think, well, what is my own shower time? Well, while I was in that shower, I have this really strong idea that shower timers, that I need to research shower timers, and the idea would not go away. So one night, I had just given birth to my my child, Estrella, my uh, youngest and last child, and so one of those late nights that I was up with her, I get online and I start researching shower timers. One thing I realized is that, no, I didn't invent the idea because I thought that it was my own original thought. But the second thing is that I found this one woman in Australia who, you know, in Australia, they've been dealing with really severe water scarcity issues for a long time. And so she had come up with these really unique style of shower timers. So I reached out to her like a cold, you know, email and asked her, you know, she had anybody in the U.S. that was distributing them. And so we we started this conversation. And so I ended up learning how to import products from overseas, and I sold 80,000 of them. And during this time, 
I'm going to, you know, Earth Day shows. I actually did end up going to the Metropolitan Water District and sold them shower timers, too. And I would tell them that if we all shaved four minutes off of our shower time, in one year, you could save 2,500 gallons of water. And I was impressed by it. I did all of these different number crunching about how much water we could save, like, you know, 10,000 of us did it or 100,000 of us just just took that simple action of reducing our shower time by four minutes. So I come across, you know, because I'm doing reading on, on water scarcity issues, and I come across this book called When the Rivers Run Dry. And in that book, the author introduced me to this concept called virtual water or water footprint. And essentially what that is, is the calculation of how much water it takes to produce any good or service. And in the book, he talks about how our food has the largest water footprint, that 70% of all fresh water on the planet is used to grow food. And in that moment, the book wasn't about food. It was just, he was just introducing it in the introduction of this book. So I'm reading it, and then I have this really strong idea, again, which was eat less water. Like, I need to write this book called Eat Less Water because I am in the wrong room of the house. Because the most effective place to save water is not in the shower or even changing out our lawns or all of these other things that we're told to do during drought, but rather it is in our kitchen and the choices we make. Because we each eat here in the United States anywhere between 500 to 1,300 gallons of water every day. Wow. So that's where the, the idea came to write this book called Eat Less Water. I love how you mentioned you were in the wrong room at your house to really solve this problem. And it seems almost like a cop-out solution when these droughts happen of, hey, take shorter showers, don't water your lawn, don't wash your car outside. But that seems more of like a Band-Aid solution. And, and what you're talking about here and on the cover of your book, it talks about the solution to worldwide water shortages is in our kitchens. And in, in your book, you, you really dive through and you have an amazing storytelling capability of looking at wheat and water, rice and water, eggs and water, and all these things that maybe people don't really think about. So maybe walk us through and give us some context on how you went about exploring all these different food products in their water footprint and then sort of what what's your recommendations for people on how they be a more responsible water consumer when it comes to eating less water? So when I embarked on this process to write this book, which was seven years ago, well, first, so, so okay, so I had a great title for it. I knew that 70% of all fresh water was used to grow food. And I also knew that the other statistic that's just kind of mind-boggling is that by 2050, half of the world population will be experiencing water scarcity. So I knew those things, and I knew that I wanted to make a difference. But my question was, how? How could one person make an impact on water systems around the world? What could I do differently with the way that, with what I'm choosing to purchase at the grocery store or cook? Or I mean, what what is the what is that answer? And the only way I could find the answer was to set out to farms. So one of the first farms that I went to 
was the one you mentioned in Wheat, The Wheat and Water, which is my first chapter of the book. And at that farm I went, it was in Paso Robles, California. And Paso Robles, California has the same amount of rainfall as Phoenix, Arizona. It is dry. It gets wet during certain periods, but for the most part, it is hot and dry. Well, that's an area of the world that produces a tremendous amount of wine and almonds. Well, this particular farm I went to called With the Grain is, you know, nestled in between both those those um, types of farms. And he, John DeRosé, the farmer, grows grain. So he grows wheat. And I show up, and it was actually on a rainy day, and he completely opened my world to this thinking about that you can grow food without irrigation. He is what's called a dry farmer. And at that point, I had never heard of that concept of what is a dry farmer. And it turns out that most people, most farmers on the planet do grow food without irrigation. But it's not necessarily a dry farmer, but mostly rain-fed irrigation. And so in the rain-fed, if you're a rain-fed farmer, you are basically, you know, praying for rainfall. And as the climate gets hotter or the, the, the way that our water systems are changing with climate change, or not climate change, but, but global, actually, now I'm, now I'm using the wrong terminology, but with climate change, what we're starting to see is that farmers that once were rain-fed, had a rain-fed uh, crops, are now needing to introduce irrigation, which is putting more strains on our water systems. So here you go, going back to Paso Robles, here's this farmer who is growing grain with zero irrigation. And I thought, how can you possibly do that? Because where I live here in Oxnard, California, where we produce strawberries that are exported all over the world, we use irrigation rain or shine. And that's how, you know, when I when I first started this process, one of the things I thought was, okay, so so the better way to irrigate would be drip irrigation, right? Because drip uses a lot less water. That it's more efficient. Well, when I started setting out with these farms, I realized that it goes way beyond drip irrigation. So when John takes me down to what he calls his dirt laboratory, and he yanks out grass or the crop cover, and I mean that's all it looks like. It's just a clump of grass. And he pulls it out, and he, he shows me all these the dangling root systems and says, you know, this this right here is what we got going. The best thing we got going on, on our planet is grass and how it's feeding the microorganisms in the soil. And so that is what he and so many other farmers like him who are looking at how do you save water, how do you save our resources, how do we do this better with more nutritious, you know, grow more nutritious food, they are all looking at how do you build the microorganisms in our soil. That's really what it comes down to because soil that has, that is rich with microorganisms can hold water up to a thousand times more than soil that is absent microbiology, which is the soil that I see around me because when you use pesticides or fumigants, you know, that the chemical is designed to kill something, right? Whether it's weeds or it's um, unwanted pests. Well, 
the unintended consequence is it's killing the microbiology in the soil. And so what we are creating is like all this pavement. It doesn't look like pavement, but all of the soil on our cropland that is chemically treated is act like pavement. When it rains, we lose 80% of that rain to evaporation and runoff. And so instead of that water you know, leaking and being absorbed by the soil and replenishing our underground water system, we're losing it to streams and then it goes out to the ocean, polluted. Mm-hmm. So when I'm looking at food, you know, by going out to these different farms and taking you with me on this journey, then you could understand that, oh, okay, like having that vocabulary is powerful. So that you know, you know what, when I go out and I find I'm looking for my flower, I'm going to, now I know that term dry farm and I value it and I know what that means. So then I'm going to ask for it or I'm going to seek it out. Or for example, you know, he's also what's called a biodynamic farmer. And I talk, you know, the my wine chapter also talks about biodynamics, which is another farming method that is looking at building the soil and not importing water, not importing petroleum fertilizers into their farms, but looking at how do you make your farm into its own sustainable organism, right? Uh-huh. So those, all of those um, methods that these farmers are implementing in their farms around the country and around the world are really the answer for how to move forward and save water where we're using it most, which is on our farms. I love it. And it seems like many times throughout the book, you talk about this whole notion of building sustainable soil and healthy dirt. And it does seem like throughout time, there's been some advantages and disadvantages to irrigation where there are times where sometimes there isn't water there. So we have to bring it there. But it looks like almost now we've looked at this short-term focus on irrigation and pesticides to just grow as much as possible without really necessarily considering the long-term ramifications of what farming in a particular area with a bunch of chemicals does to not only our watershed, but then ultimately how that impacts the food that we're consuming and what that does in terms of having those different traces of chemicals throughout our food chain. Right. And that was something that was interesting too, going through this process is this really, this realization that if it's not good for a river, it's not good for our bodies. Yeah. Our bodies are a replication of the planet earth i mean that just fascinates me every time i think about it you know our bodies are composed of 70 percent water and so is the planet and if the planet isn't healthy and if we're not taking care of our water systems our bodies aren't either and one of the farms that i went to in um, louisiana in my rice chapter kurt he really talked about the nutrition that you know, we are not healthy. Like all of us know people who are struggling with some health issue, whether it's ourselves or somebody close to us. And, you know, but we don't have to look any further than how our food is being produced to come up with the reason why, because we are what we eat. So when, you know, it's pretty extraordinary to think about food and its root systems. When you start looking at the biology of food, 
like the biology of the soil and how that impacts our the plants that are grown in it, it just totally changes the way you look at your food. And so, for example, when I was back going back to Kurt's farm, so he is what's called an SRI farm, and that is the system of rice intensification. He is only one, or he was only one of three farms in the country who practice this particular type of method. It's something that is done in like the Philippines and India, um, other rice growing countries, but we don't have that here, unfortunately, here in the United States. But that practice, which, you know, instead of broadcasting rice, they plant the rice individually, and the root systems are much longer, much deeper, and as a result, it creates a bigger grain and uses 40% less water. So by having a deeper root system, what happens is that the plant has access to more water, so then you don't have to water that plant more. It's not as thirsty. And it also has access to more mineral than plants that are grown in the shallow parts of the soil. So if it has access to more minerals, that means the plant has access to more minerals, and that means our bodies have access to more minerals. And so it's just kind of, you see when, you know, it's like I, I make choices all the time about what food am I bringing into my house and I'm cooking, you know, for my family, and I'm doing it because I know it's better for water, but it's also better for us. Like, it's also better for our health, and it also tastes better. <laughs> that's, that's the other great reward with eating less water, is not only are you saving water, but you are rewarded by just better tasting food. Yeah, makes sense. And I, I, I appreciate how you go about how this is a, an effort to, to build the vocabulary and share best practices amongst consumers, farmers, and ultimately raising the awareness on this whole concept. And, and throughout the whole book, you, you do an amazing job diving into all these different topics from, from wheat to rice to aquaculture, different things like that. But I think one thing that really strikes a lot of people is when they truly hear how much water it takes to produce the meat that we consume. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around what actually goes into that number when you state it takes 1,500 gallons or I forget the exact number to create a pound of meat. People are like, well, what do you mean? Like, I mean, it's just a one little burger. How how is that possible? So if possible, could you give us some context on the whole concept around meat, which I know there's different types of meat that have different severities of of water usage. So give us some context and and a little bit about the, the meat side of the whole eat less water concept. Right. So meat has one of the highest water footprints. So, for example, a slice of bread is 11 gallons of water versus a pound of meat, which is 1,800 gallons of water. So, you know, the reason for that is when you do a calculation for water footprint, it's, you know, it's a a pretty uh, complicated formula, but they're taking, they're looking at the averages. So, in the case of the cow, you're looking at how much water does that cow consume over a lifetime, its lifetime, how much water does it take to produce the food that the cow eats over the lifetime of that cow before it becomes our meat, which is about a year, anywhere between a year to 18 months, depending on what kind of meat you're buying. So 
that's how they take in the calculation. That's why the higher the water footprint is, you know, matches if the higher the animal is on the food chain. So, for example, chicken is also higher, but not as high as the cow because a cow, you know, they, we raise them to be about a thousand pounds before they go to slaughter versus a chicken that, you know, generally lives for about three, four months before they're harvested. So that's where that calculation comes from. So of course a plant, except for with with the exception of chocolate, um, a plant is going to have a lower water footprint. So for me, that's a good starting place. When I first started on this process to think about how do I eat less water, I think it's really important to think about water footprint when you are in a situation where everything is conventionally raised. So when I end up in a, because, you know, we live in this world, I can't possibly always be in a situation where I have choices for organic foods or I can reach for that lotus food rice that I know is SRI, the method I was talking about. So when I find myself, for example, in a restaurant and I have these choices, I'm going to look at, I do think about my water footprint of the food, so I want to go lower on the food chain because everything is conventionally grown. But when I can really, when I have access to the, the ingredients, when I'm choosing what food to bring home to my family, then I broaden how I look at it. So in the book, I talk about this concept of green water and blue water. And I, for me, that really helped to understand water footprints and water scarcity in a deeper way. So water researchers have made this designation for these two water colors. So blue water is essentially the water that's used here in Oxnard, where I live. When they are watering those lettuce fields, watering those strawberries, they're using blue water, which is water that's being drawn from our groundwater supplies and it's not being replenished just quickly enough. So water that's coming from groundwater, from reservoirs, from rivers, all of that is called blue water. Green water is what John DeRossier is using in Pasta Robles with his wheat. He's using natural rain and moisture. That's what rain-fed or dry-farmed farmers are doing. They're using green water. And so, all of these farms that I went to around the world or around the country, they are farmers who really are water managers, and they're looking at how can I reduce the amount of blue water and use as much green water as I can. So by building that soil, because if you build that soil so that it, it acts like sponges, then you're a farmer that can use less blue water and rely more on green water. So then it kind of opens up the way you think about food. So organic food is a good way to start because organic food is, you know, when it's certified or when they're really small farmers, I'm not as concerned about the certification because I can ask them when I'm at the farmer's market, then you can ask those questions like, are you using petroleum-based fertilizers? Are you using pesticides on your, you know, so you can ask those questions where in the aisles of the grocery store, you need that third party certification to ask those questions for you. So I 
am asking those questions so that I can understand what's going on on their farm and to understand if they're using more green water or more blue water. Because that's what I want to do is try to, to encourage farming that's using more green water. So that's how I'm eating less water. So it becomes less important about what the food is, but more important about how the food is farmed. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And one thing that I really like about how you mentioned in your book, and you're, you're very honest about it, is that we're not perfect every day. And sometimes we're better than others in terms of our water footprint. And it is okay to sometimes maybe have a slightly higher water footprint. And, and I think it, it, a lot of this comes down to being a conscious consumer and thinking about what can we all do on the individual micro level that if we do collectively towards the macro, we can make a significant difference. And like you said, we can save 2,500 gallons a year if we all do our part by improving our water footprint in the shower. But if we all decided to look at things that lower in the food chain and trying to be more conscious about eating things that are organic and sustainably grown with different aspects of green water, if we do that collectively on the micro that 20, as opposed to just 2,500 gallons in the shower, I mean, you could do 2,500 gallons in a day or two just through your diet. And if we look mm -hmm. at that on the, mi mm -hmm. on the macro, that's a very tangible way to look at, well, geez, there's 7.2 billion people or so right now. And we're looking at some crazy numbers of 9 to 10 billion by 2050. So to me, it almost seems imperative that this is a solution to that problem. But do you, do you look at this as being one of the most important tangible solutions to actually feeding our future world? Because right now, I mean, I, I'd say that we know that there's a limited amount of water, so we have to do something to be able to sufficiently feed our growing population. Yeah, absolutely. We, I believe so strongly that if we merge our influence, that we can make powerful change in the way that food is produced on this planet because our food tells a story you know when you open your cupboards or open your refrigerator everything in there is telling you some type of water story and it's either a good one or a bad one and unfortunately right now the story that our food tells is not a good one it's telling a story of water scarcity of water pollution of soil erosion of deforestation all of the, the environmental issues that we deal with can be shown in our food in some way. So I become an activist in my kitchen, and we all can become activists in our kitchen by making different choices on a daily basis or on a weekly basis. And the good news, like what you were talking about, is that there is power in the collective, that it, all of those little things that we do will add up to big things and big change. So it might not seem like that makes a difference to that you're reaching for that organic milk, that Strauss milk that's coming in a glass even, and you know that you can return so that you're not even using the, you're reducing waste as well. So you could reach for that and pay, you know, $3 more than the conventional brand. And it might not feel like that big of a deal, but it is a big deal. It is a big deal if I'm doing it and you're doing it and your neighbor's doing it. And it might not be that you can do it every single time, but maybe you can do it every other time. 
or maybe you can do it every two times, right? Because we're all coming at this from a different budget of how we can change the story that's being told in our own home. But, you know, one of the other things I talk about in the book, so one, you know, I've already kind of, kind of talked about action steps. So one of it, one is organic food. It does kind of feel like, especially when you live in pockets of kind of, uh, like in California, for example, here in California, and I'm sure, you know, in Chicago too, there's, you feel, you can feel like there's lots of organic food. And, but it comes, it actually turns out that only 3% of agriculture is organic. So there is a lot of potential for growth for more organic food. But that can only happen if we as consumers ask for it, because this is a partnership between the farmer and the food producer and the eater. That's where we come in. And the farmer, the farmers, farmers don't want to be using chemicals on their farms, but they need to know that there is a market for their products to grow in these ways that I talk about in the book. It is, all of the rules are not built, all of the the rules for food are not built to support small-scale organic farming. So that needs to change. But in the meantime, our dollars can help to change what's going on on the front lines of this movement because they need us to support what they're doing on a daily basis to build soil, to build, to grow more nutritious food that's using less water. I love that. And it really is a two-way street to both combat the problem and, and be the solution in terms of educating consumers on the value and importance of consuming organic foods and, and evaluating their decisions in the kitchen. And, and most importantly, what you said, that it may seem insignificant to some, but if you just once a week, twice a week, a couple times a month get into being an activist in your kitchen and telling other people about it, that really can go quite a long way to reducing the burden on our resources, allowing our world to continue to produce food for the growing population, and most importantly, just being a responsible water consumer. And there's a lot of things we can do right. in our house, but like you said, the kitchen is arguably the most important room in our house that we need to be aware of so we can collectively move towards fighting some of these water problems that we have in our world. Right. And by extension of you know our kitchen is when we leave our kitchen and we, you know, when we're traveling or we're out and we want to pick up food, you know, supporting those restaurants that are committed to organic, small-scale farming, you know, because, you know, restaurants really are purchasing a lot more food than any of our kitchens are. So whenever I'm traveling, I'm always doing my Google search on farm-to-table or sustainable food restaurants, and, you know, I'm always brought to these really fantastic bases of kitchens that really are the temples for sustainable food, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, I was just in Monterey, and I went to, I did that search, and I ended up at a place called Happy Girl, and it was fantastic. I mean, and I truly was a happy girl there because of the menu and just the, the energy that was there and because they're dedicated to supporting organic farming and small scale farmers. So I, you know, all of those, there's so many of those places that exist all over 
this country, all over the world. But again, those sustainable restaurants also need us to seek them out so that they can exist and that we understand the value of the type of food that they're serving, which is why it costs more because it costs them more and it costs the farmer more. So, for example, the meat chapter that I write about, I went to a place called Hunter Cattle outside of Savannah, Georgia, and the way that they farm meat, because meat is a really important one, because if you do choose to eat meat, because, you know, meat has a huge water footprint, it is connected to deforestation around the planet, it is the largest polluter of rivers in the United States and around the world. I mean, meat, if we are eating meat, that is the one place that we truly need to be engaged about where where is it coming from. So hunter cattle is one of many farms, and I hope a growing number of farms, that is doing a method called, it's called different things. It could be called mob grazing, intensive, can you help me out? I can't remember the name, like intensive, I can't remember the actual term. There's different ways of talking about it, but it's essentially rotating animals from one paddock to the other. So it's rotational grazing is another way to call it. And the way that I just find, I ask, when I go to the farmer's market and I ask questions and I say, when I'm looking for a new meat producer, whether it's for my eggs or for my chickens or my beef, I'm asking, I want to know if those animals are just grazed in one big open space that leads to overgrazing, or if they are like on hunter cattle where they're in cordoned off fenced paddocks and those animals are not allowed to overgraze any patch of land because they're moving them off of that land like every week or every two weeks depending on the time of the year. So those animals are giving back to the land because there is a symbiotic relationship between the animal and the soil, but they're not taking too much from the land as what happens when an animal is left, a grazing animal is left on the land for too long. Any of us who've had backyard chickens have seen this, you know, where you leave chickens in one spot and they're not, they're not moving around in your yard. That spot where those chickens exist will turn to dirt. Mm-hmm. And then that dirt, you know, when it rains, there is no root systems there. So it just runs off that land instead of being drawn deeper and replenishing the um, water systems underneath. So, you know, so we see it at a really micro level and don't realize that that's what's happening on a global level with our animals that are overgrazing our pastures. So when I'm looking for meat, I'm looking for rotated animals that are coming from these rotated farms where it's it's intentional grazing. And, you know, the first place where I learned about this type of farming was in my, I, I write about it in my dairy chapter, Organic Valley Farms, which is a cooperative of small scale dairy farmers from around the country who can then do what they do, but are distributed in a national label. I really like that as a, as a model, what Organic Valley is doing. So I was in this farm in New York, and the farmers there, Maureen and Paul Knapp, 
introduced me to this concept of moth grazing, where you're where they're moving their animals from paddock to paddock so that their animals don't overgraze. And before they did that, before the, the summer was over, the pasture would, there was no more to give to those animals. And then they would have to introduce like corn, which is water intensive or alfalfa. Like they would have to bring other supplements, the, the grass for their animals because the grass would, wouldn't last for the entire season. And so since they've introduced this rotated pasture system, those animals have plenty for the entire season and they don't have to bring in any supplements. And the other piece is that they live along the river and that's, that was the reason for them to become an organic farm because they were initially a conventional farm, dairy farm. And they, seeing what the impact was you know having this recognition that we all live upstream so really caring about what's going on downstream so wanting to be part of that solution so that they were not contributing to the pollution that was that's occurring in that part of the world i love it and that that phrase is so powerful we we are all downstream from someone else and i know it's easy to think that the whole concept around not in my backyard and I'm just going to throw this out and mm-hmm. someone's going to take care of it and it's not a big deal but it does eventually make its way down to the watershed and the food chain and it does have an impact and, and you, you really have a lot of good ideas that can be shared amongst other farmers and other producers or food but what I'd like to try and finish off here with and because truly I think we could have this podcast be five, two to five hours <laughs> for someone to take a time to finish off with the concept around not only talking about what consumers can do in the kitchen, but with some of the activities that you've done and sort of the whole concept around cooking classes and, and some of the recipes within your book. Just to finish off here, can you maybe give us some context on some of the cooking classes that you've done and, and offer and then some of the recipes in your book that you have throughout the end of the chapters? So, you know, I'm an activist by nature. And when I set out to write this book, it was really important for me that it had action steps because we often will read books, you know, nonfiction books about telling us about a specific problem. And then we're kind of left with like, okay, well, what does that mean? And we just kind of go on with our life without making any change. So the recipes for me are the launching pad for the activism. You know, when I talk about the kitchen, being activists in our kitchen, so the recipes are just the blueprint to get started. And I use the terminology that I learned on these farms in the recipe so that that's how they look different. So they'll say like organic, you know, bread or what, you know, whatever it is, like the ingredients, but not just organic. I'll use terms like dry farmed or biodynamic or SRI rice or whole caught fish, you know, so whatever those different terms that you just learned with me are integrated in the recipe. So it's not necessarily that, that these are the recipes, like the quiche recipe I have here is the recipe that's going to change the story for water systems around the world. But in other words, you can use those recipes as a beginning 
and turn any of your own recipes that you love into an eat less water recipe. So when I give, you know, I give lots of talks and I feel like in order for us to really make a change or to really be engaged in something, we need to engage the senses. So any time that I can add like the sense of smell or taste, I I jump at that opportunity. So for example, I've done talks where I have the tequila maker who I write about is tequila alquimia because he lives close by. So I so we have a lot of fun doing tequila tasting, eat less water book, you know, tour things. And so you not only are learning about eat less water, that whole concept, but you also get to try organic tequila at the same time. So that's the same concept that I brought into with the with the cooking classes. So I just just finished a cooking class for the malas, which is the recipe in the book in the produce and water chapter. And the recipe is Swiss chard, kale, and cheese, the malas. And, you know, so they could be made vegan or vegetarian. I came up with a masa, which is the dough, you know, the corn dough for the, um, for the tamale in a way that you don't have to use manteca, which is pig fat. So in start, or I think it's actually beef. It's a, it's a fat that comes from animal. So instead of using that, you can use olive oil. And while I'm introducing this, a, a new way of making tamales, I'm talking about how important our ingredients, how our ingredients matter, how it really does come down to ingredients to change this story that we're, t- that we're telling around water on this planet, that we, again, it's like coming back to the activism in the kitchen, which really is what is where is that um, olive oil coming from? Where is that masa coming from? So I'm using a masa that's organic or non-GMO and the, how that's important. Where is that kale and Swiss chard coming from? You know, buying it from the farmer's market, from local small-scale farmers. So all of those pieces that are being brought into one mixing bowl that then get turned into something that's delicious, not just for our palate, but for our soil and for our water system. So that's where the the cooking class come in. I've done bread baking, cooking class, and the tamales, and um, I'm looking to do some others as well. People really do enjoy them. I just learned myself, I just took a cooking class on how to turn our bread into like a fermented food using the levans, which is, which I love this whole concept. Again, going back to how our bodies mirror what's happening on the planet. So, you know, fermented food, when I wrote about fermented food in my book, it was actually in the beer chapter because when beer is produced in the way that it's intended, it is a fermented food. So it's chocolate. You know, that's something I didn't didn't realize either. But I just learned that bread in its natural form is a fermented food. And so just like the soil, you know, when you have that microbiology, that good bacteria, you have healthy, vibrant soil that can 
hold water. It, it produces more nutrients. Well, our stomachs are the same way. So when we feed our stomach good bacteria through fermented food, we too then are creating this really healthy and vibrant gut, you know, that's good for our bodies. So I've been, I've been playing with that concept too. So now I've taken my bread to the new, a, a new level of making it fermented. So I'm pretty excited about that. So I, that's something that I want to introduce to, to students as well. I have heard that phrase, healthy gut, healthy life. And I think there's, there's definitely yeah, a lot, yeah. a lot of merit to that. And, and, and I know there's, if anything, I'd love to dive into each and every chapter and I hope we can continue this conversation. And I think you, you are truly just a, a wealth of knowledge when it comes to all this. And, and when one of my goals here in 2019 is to, to see how can we raise more awareness on this concept, but also do some more events even here locally in Chicago. So that's one thing I want to make sure to propose to you. And, and lastly, just to kind of tie this together together for the audience and we'll have this in the show notes but if people wanted to learn more about the whole concept or, or maybe get a copy of the book what's the best way for our listeners to do that so you can find the book uh, on amazon on uh, barnes and noble audible if you want to listen to it i'm not sure how the whole recipe works <laughs> when you listen to it and you know you can follow me i'm on i'm pretty active on instagram so i'll give little techniques or ideas around what to do just kind of as I think about them on the daily on my daily round so for example yesterday I posted about Sundays becomes my leftover days because here in the United States we waste anywhere between 30 to 50 percent of our food so Sundays for me becomes a good time to look at what do I have left in my refrigerator from the week and what can I build like what meal can I build around those leftovers so yesterday I had a bunch of rice Mexican rice left from a meal a few days earlier so I built our lunch around that and I had just a little bit of of chicken you know like when you have a little bit of chicken or or something and you think should I save it like it's hardly anything and, you know, my kids who were having to clean up was like, do you want me to save this, mom? Like, there's hardly, and I'm like, no, no, go ahead. We, we'll, we'll make it work, especially when it's meat. I don't want to throw away any meat. So, you know, I was able to make two tacos from that, from that chicken, you know, and how those, again, those little things that we do, if I'm doing them and you're doing them and our neighbors are doing them, those little things turn into big things because there is power in the collective. Very well said, Florencia. Well, again, thank you so much for all this. And I look forward to creating more podcasts and awareness with you moving forward. And, and thank you for, for all the work you've done on this book. And, and I'm really excited to, to apply it more into my life and to everyone within the responsible community. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin, for the work you do in the world. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rethinking H2O podcast. If you liked today's episode, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and other social media at Responsible. And stay tuned for future episodes of the show. We'll see you next time on the Rethinking H2O podcast.